coming up on this week's show, we recommend some binge-worthy shows and movies, plus we play Q&A with some authors. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 235 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willcanouse.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we're going to have coming up for you next week. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. We've all made it through another week, and I hope things are going well for you and yours. A few bits of news before we get into those binge-worthy things we were talking about. As you heard on last week's show, the Hockey Allies Bachelor Bid Romance books are all coming out this Tuesday, April 7th. I am very excited for Keeping Kyle, the first book that I've had out brand new in about 10 months. So I'm super excited to put that out into the world. We do have some Facebook parties coming up that all of the authors will be attending. We've got them scheduled for Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week, and I'll have the links in the show notes with some specific time information as well. Most of them are happening in the afternoons, usually between about 3 and 8 p.m. Eastern time. So be on the lookout for those this week. We do want to mention it's book club time. We hope if you listened to the March book club with Annabeth Albert's Arctic Heat that you enjoyed that. And we are pleased to announce the April book, which is LOL Laugh Out Loud by Lucy Lennox and Molly Maddox. It is the second book in the After Oscar series. Now, you really enjoyed the first one, which I believe was called IRL. Mm -hmm. Are you excited for LOL? I am indeed. So if you are a patron, you're going to get this book club episode tomorrow on Tuesday, April 7th. And then at the end of the month, on Tuesday, April 28th, it will go into the regular podcast feed for everyone to hear. So if you have not read LOL yet, pick it up so you can follow along in our deep dive discussion on that book. It's so funny. I will just say it lived up to its LOL title um, <laughs> as I read it because I did that several times while reading. I <laughs> also wanted to make note of an event that is actually coming up this week. We made a note last week that playwright Terrence McNally passed away. There's a tribute to him that's actually going to air live on this Monday, April 6th, on the Broadway.com YouTube channel. Jesse Teller Ferguson, Celia Keenan-Bolger, Ari Grainer, and Zachary Quinto are going to do a reading of Lips Together, Teeth Apart. And this reading is going to benefit Broadway Cares Equity... This reading will benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, the COVID-19 emergency fund that they've got set up. I have read this play several years ago. It is very typical Terrence McNally where you can laugh hysterically in one moment and then be dramatically moved the next. It's actually a play about two straight couples who spend a weekend in a gay community. And one of the women in the couples, the house that they're staying in is actually that of her brother who has passed away from AIDS. It's quite a good play, this cast. I'm super excited to see what they do. And I'll have a link in the show notes page so that you can either catch that live on Monday evening. It'll start at 8 Eastern, or you can catch a replay of it. And that'll be on Broadway.com's YouTube channel. In the hockey player's heart, the feel-good gay romance by Jeff Adams and Will Knaus, hockey star Caleb Carter returns to his hometown to recover from an injury. He never expects to run into his one-time crush at a grade school fundraiser. 
seeing Aaron Price hits him hard, like being checked into the boards. The attraction is still there, even after all these years, and Caleb decides to make a play for the school teacher. You miss 100% of the shots you never take, right? Aaron has been burned by love before, and can't imagine what a celebrity like Caleb could possibly see in a guy like him. Their differences are just too great. But as Aaron spends more time with Caleb, he begins to wonder if he might have what it takes to win the hockey player's heart. Get the hockey player's heart at Amazon.com. So along with everyone else in the free world, Jeff and I have been spending a lot of time here at home, which actually isn't really different than no, our it really isn't. normal life anyway, <laughs> but we have been binge watching some shows that I think are worth mentioning. The first thing we want to talk about is Toy Boy. Now we mentioned this a few weeks back. It's a Spanish series that is currently on Netflix. And the show centers around Hugo, a guy who has been wrongly accused of a crime. And once he gets out of prison, he heads back to the strip club where he used to work. The show is sexy and outrageous and full of twists and turns and full of melodrama and angst. For listeners of this show, it's worth noting that one of Hugo's friends is Hiro. He is the mute stripper pal uh, who also has a certain affinity for a guy named Andrea, who is the son of the woman Hugo has been having an affair with. It's all wonderfully complex and convoluted and outrageous and heartfelt as well. I really loved Hiro and Andrea so much. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the episodes, they have kind of a slow burn, angst-filled journey towards love. It's really intense and really, really wonderful. So Jeff and I highly recommend everyone check out Toy Boy if you haven't yet. Yeah, it's it's so good. And while it has some outrageous qualities, it really does. The core mystery suspense element of it, I thought was really well done, which just, it drew me in and I'm like, it's one of those where it's like, I'm really tense while I'm watching this and oh my, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> exactly. Another show we recently binged was a show from 2017 called Time After Time. And it was loosely based on the movie of the same name from 1979. And it's about Jack the Ripper, who uses a time machine to jump forward in the timeline and terrorize a modern city. And he is followed by H.G. Wells, who has to bring him back to justice. We started watching the show when it aired originally a couple of years ago, but ABC canceled it after five episodes, and we're only just now getting to the entire <laughs> series. It's really good. I liked it an awful lot. Jack the Ripper is played by Josh Bowman, and Freddie Stroma is H.G. Wells, and the whole show centers around them and the violence of modern times and the time travel shenanigans and all sorts of outrageous conspiracy theories and the people who want to use the time machine for their own various purposes. It's all really wonderful and interesting and complex. And it doesn't hurt that both Josh and Freddie are extremely attractive Indeed. and really damn charming. I've liked these two actors and other things that they have done. And when you put them together, the screen really lights up. They have a really interesting chemistry together. The show ran for, I think it was only 12 or 13 episodes. 
And it ended in a good spot. The main story arc did essentially end, but it left the door open for the back end of a season that unfortunately never happened. You could get it on the CW seed. Let's talk about some documentaries. We recently watched At the Drive-In, which is the story of a struggling Pennsylvania drive-in and what may be their last season. And this is a really interesting utterly charming movie about a bunch of movie nerds doing everything they can to keep this place afloat. I so enjoyed this. I mean, I kind of forced you into watching this because like, hey, that looks interesting. We, we Let's watch that. Let's watch that. Let's watch that. And you finally <laughs> gave in. Seeing the passion of these people for not just film, but specifically 35 millimeter film projected on a big screen in a way that most of America doesn't experience anymore because there's only, what, a couple hundred drive-ins across the entire country now? Yeah, at the most. And their efforts to be able to continue to find a way to operate. One of the driving stories in this film is about the, the fact that the theater can't get new movies because the distributors have all moved towards digital now and they can't afford the thousands of dollars for a a digital projector. So there's a lot of good stuff here. It's really fun if you're into film and it is streaming on Amazon Prime. Another documentary that sort of pulls the curtain back about what goes on behind the scenes of making a movie is called Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. And that title essentially says it all. I spoke about this movie a couple of years ago when I originally watched it when it came out in 2015. I love this movie so much because not only is it fascinating to know what went on behind the scenes of this movie that was never supposed to be seen by the public, but... What strikes me is how passionate, even after all these years, everyone who worked on this movie loved working on it, and they all appear on camera and talking about their experience. I only have known about this issue tangentially because you watched the film the first time, and this was my first time to see it. I was utterly shocked at the links to which that the film got made, it almost got released, and then it didn't get released, and then there's all these legal shenanigans. And to this day, that the film has still not uh, had an official release. I have to think at some point that now that Disney owns Fox and owns Marvel and all this stuff, that eventually this movie is going to come out as a bonus extra to something. But it's it's so much Hollywood shenanigans and the the blood, sweat, and tears that these people put into that movie only to have it, you know, put up on the shelf and never released, which just, it's insane. (laughs) And that's also streaming on Amazon Prime. This past week was the National Trans Day of Visibility. And in honor of that, we watched the movie Man Made, which is a documentary by T. Cooper. He is an activist and director and obviously documentarian. And what he did is he followed four guys in the months leading up to the TransFitCon bodybuilding competition. It's really their stories, Mason, Dominic, Kenny, and Reese. And while a movie about a bodybuilding competition you might think is, you know, filled with, you know, dudes going, let's go to the gym and drink protein shakes, that kind of a thing. And certainly there were scenes of the guys working out, which I certainly didn't mind at all. (laughs) What the movie does in a really wonderful, heartfelt, detailed way is it's, 
following their lives in the different points at which they're all in transition. A lot of time is spent with Dominic and we follow him as he has his top surgery. We also follow him as he searches for his biological mom. So the movie is filled with a lot of really wonderful, interesting stories. And the climax is essentially the bodybuilding competition. And it's really a celebration of one's own identity. It's really, really wonderful. And I recommend everyone check it out. Yeah. The, this documentary is filled with so much heart. Mm. To call exactly. it a documentary about a bodybuilding competition is really underplaying what the whole film is because it's such an affirmation of these four people what they're going through as you said where they are with their transition what that transition is meaning to the people in their lives their families Mm -hmm. their significant others it was really insightful and heartwarming and a wonderful way to spend you know roughly an hour and 45 minutes to get to know these people to understand a little bit more about what the trans experience can be like I can't recommend it highly enough. And as with the last few we've talked about, it is also streaming on Amazon Prime. I want to quickly mention a romance that came out about a year or two ago based on the book of the same name. The Sun is Also a Star. Oh, gosh, this movie is so swoon worthy, guys. It really is. <laughs> There's not a scrap of LGBTQ content in it, but it is swoon worthy and you will be so happy you watch this. It's a really wonderful romance. And it is about a guy and a girl who meet by chance in New York City and essentially spend 24 hours together. And in that time, they end up falling in love. And it's about not only them and the conversations and experiences they have during that one day. It's about their families and where they are at that specific point in their lives. It's really, really interesting and uh, remarkably well done. I really love the two leads. They're um, charming. Uh, and complex. It's a a really damn good movie. And for a point of reference, most of you Gen Xers out there will have seen Before Sunrise, a movie that had a similar theme. It was about Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi spending a day together and falling in love during that time period. This is essentially the Gen Z version (laughs) of that. But don't let that sort of a reductive description of mine turn you away from this really remarkable little film. I Loved it so much. Yeah, it was really sweet, really nice. As you said, the two actors were just outstanding because they're on screen the, the entire, entire movie. <laughs> yeah, the movie would live and die by their performances because they were in every single scene all the time, usually together, sometimes separate, but usually together. And it it it's a love letter to how you can experience a day in the city. It's a love letter to the city itself because they shot all over that city in this. And it was just, it was lovely. It was a a wonderful evening at the movies. And to wrap things up, I want to recommend two gay dramas that we recently watched. The first is I Am Jonas. It's a French movie from 2018. And I am always reticent when it comes to French movies because I have been burned (laughs) more times than not. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) French movies tend to be a little frou-frou and a little too artsy for me. Your movie needs to have an ending. It's not artsy if your movie has an ending. It's just frustrating and stupid. Yes, yes, indeed. (laughs) But this movie wasn't like that. It is really damn good. In describing this, I'm probably going to have to keep it very vague because the story and the drama surrounding Jonas, the main character, really hinges on some pretty significant 
twists and turns and reveals in his life's journey. Essentially, the story is about Jonas, a guy who is kind of a screw up and he's lost. And the story kind of ping pongs back and forth in time to the present day um, where he's doing some strange stuff and to his youth 18 years earlier when he was in high school and fell in love with bad boy Nathan. And what I thought was really interesting from a storytelling point of view is that the flashbacks weren't just exposition. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, if you're using flashback as a narrative device, it's usually because you need it to explain something that's going on in the present of the story. Here, what was really interesting is, is that the past and the present are both interwoven in a really interesting, necessary way. So it wasn't the present day timeline and what happened in the past. It was really one single overarching story mm-hmm. that we're learning about Jonas. Now, the reason that Jonas is kind of a screw up in the present day is because something very traumatic happened to him and Nathan in the past. And as the movie goes along, we learn what that traumatic event was and how it has affected him and the people in his life. The thing that I found interesting, and I agree with you what you said about the flashback, because sometimes flashback is really meaningless. Here, the flashback really played well into the story, as you noted. But it was just when you thought you understood what was happening, the story moved forward a little more, and then you got the next flashback. And and to see just how it all kind of piled up on Port Jonas. Uh, really well done movie, really well acted. I, I was... Like you, I was I was reticent, <laughs> but that one really paid off as a really great movie. At one point, Jonas seems to become obsessed with this pretty bleach blonde guy named Leonard. He follows him around town and he even checks into the seaside motel where Leonard works as a night clerk. And they end up having a conversation and going and hanging out. After passing out drunk, Jonas wakes up in Leonard's house, and it ends up being a key piece to the story about what happened to him in the past. Mm -hmm. And while what happens between Jonas and Leonard doesn't necessarily bring everything full circle or to closure, at least within the dramatic construct of the story, he's at least able to acknowledge what happened in a way that he never has before and is able to take those first steps forward, which is, I know, super annoying and an incredibly vague way for me to describe this movie, but it's really interesting and I liked it an awful lot. Yeah. Uh, Can't recommend it enough. It was really excellent all around and it is streaming on Netflix. And one last movie is called Just Friends. It's from the Netherlands, and it came out in 2018. And it's about a young guy named Joris, and he seems to have it all. His mom is a bit high maintenance, but he seems to spend his days going to the gym and riding his dad's old motorcycle and flying his drone, which I think someone in the movie makes a really interesting point is that flying drones is sort of the modern equivalent of like flying a kite in like mm-hmm. the olden days. Yeah. I <laughs> never, never thought of that. But yeah, I never so looked clever. at it that way, but it's actually true. It's really, really interesting. 
So our second character is a guy named Yad, who has left his small hometown and tried to make a go of it in Amsterdam. Things didn't quite work out for him, so he's kind of come home to live with his parents, and he gets a job essentially working as an elderly companion, and he ends up hanging out with Anne's an older woman in her 80s. He does chores around the house for her and that sort of thing. Anne's is actually Yoris's grandmother. So our two heroes meet and they end up flirting. There's like instant chemistry between the two of them. And it's really just sort of a sweet romance about these two guys coming to terms with their feelings for one another and how that's going to work with the circumstances that they're both dealing with with their families. Yeah, because the families are both in their own way, kind of screwed up <laughs> for, diff- for very different reasons. And it's not like horrifically screwed up, but they're they're screwed up nonetheless. They're, they're just working through some stuff. <laughs> they are working through some stuff. And through the romance of our two heroes, they kind of work through that and come to a better understanding. It's, it's a really good movie. so sweet. Guys. And I loved Grandma. <laughs> she, from the very get-go, she's a little spitfire for 80. Um, and she will tell you what's on her mind and what she thinks you need to be doing. And she is the sweetest. But yeah, these guys were just so wonderfully sweet. I love them so, so much. Yeah, Just Friends is a really lovely romance. If you don't mind reading subtitles, I highly recommend it. Yes, me as well. And that one is also on Netflix. One other quick thing. We've talked about this movie before, but it was the perfect comfort watch for this past week. We revisited the Freeform movie that came out at Valentine's Day, The Thing About Harry. We raved about this back when it came out, so I'm not going to go through it again. But that movie is so super sweet. The romance between those two is everything. And it is available these days, streaming on Freeform On Demand, and it's also available on Hulu. Now, if you're interested in learning more about anything that we've talked about on this week's episode, we've got the complete list on the show notes page for episode 235 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post. News about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at Facebook.com slash BigGayFictionPodcast and see what we get up to next. So this week in the interview segment, we wanted to bring you a little sample of some things that we do over on our other show, the Big Gay Author Podcast. Now that show we don't talk a lot about here because it's really more business-focused And it's where we talk about our journey towards becoming full-time authors of gay fiction. One of the things we do there periodically is we actually do Q&A sessions with the writers that we talk to for this show. And we delve into some of their processes, their successes, their failures, and get some advice from them for those who are maybe starting out as a writer. And so we wanted to bring some of those snippets over here to let you guys hear a little bit of what we do on that show. And we've got four authors who, as it happens, also have new books out right now. We're going to hear from L.A. Witt, who, along with Kari Z, is going to be releasing Protective Behavior, which is the fifth book in the Bad Behavior series. That's actually coming out on Wednesday, April 8th. We've got Gregory Ash, who just released Transactional Dynamics, which is the third book in the Hazard and Somerset, A Union of Swords series. And that came out at the end of March. Layla Rain will be along. She just released The Last Drop, which is a table for two novella. That came out last week. And she's got the pre-order up for Variable Onset, which is a new romantic suspense that comes out from her on May 4th. 
Plus, we've got Lucy Lennox, who, of course, just released Virgin Flyer last month, and we just named one of her books as our April Book Club pick. So let's do some Q&A with these guys. L.A. Witt, why do you write? I'm honestly not sure I could stop if I wanted to. Mostly it's because I get the plot bunny. I mean, I literally have plot bunnies tattooed on my arm because they keep coming and won't shut up and they don't let me sleep. So I have to keep writing to keep them quiet. And the fact that they're tattooed on your arm is pretty awesome. Yeah, and they're on my writing arm. I mean, I'm left-handed and they're on my left arm. So so how do you write? I outline, but my outlines change constantly. I outline in Excel, which uh, I use. I use literally an Excel spreadsheet so I can keep track of word counts and it is the most bizarre thing. But it works for me, so don't judge me. And, as long as it works uh, for you, that's all that matters. Yeah, and I have a, a word count quota every day, 5,000 words. And when I hit my quota, that can be 100 words in each chapter. It can be 5,000 words in one chapter that refuses to end. It can be spread out between three works in progress. It just depends on what I'm in the mood for that day or what I'm trying to finish. So. so you'll work on more than one project at a time. I usually have one main work in progress. And then I'll have several others that I'm working on that I'll just put a few words in here and there. Or like right now, I'm co-writing and writing a solo piece. So like what I'll do, the first thing I'll do when I get on is write a chapter for Kari, send that off to her, and then I move on to my solo work. And it just depends on what I have going on. I think my brain would explode, but I admire people that can do that. I don't have any deadlines anymore because I'm entirely self-published now. When I had deadlines, I would actually have to do like, I need to do 3,000 words on this book and 2,000 words on this book because it's the only way I'm going to finish them both by the end of the month. Makes sense. Are you full-time? Yes. What were your steps to get there? The short version is that I fell back asswards into it and it worked out. The long version, and this is kind of a long story, is that my husband got transferred to Okinawa. And when we got the orders, I looked and I said, so there aren't any civilian jobs over there. What do we do? And he said, well, when we got married, you said you always wanted to take, if we could afford it, you wanted to take six to 12 months off and try writing full time. See if you get a writing career off the ground. He said, you have three years. And we made a deal that he would support me. You know, he would work because he was military. He didn't have a lot of choice. And I would write, I would focus on writing. I didn't have to get a job, just focus on writing, try and get published. And if I could get a part-time income out of it, then when we went back to the States, then I didn't have to get a full-time job. And I had just done nine years of customer service. So that was like some hardcore motivation. I was literally on the plane to Japan, pounding away at a NaNoWriMo novel going, I have to make this happen. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it took, that was November of 2008. My first book came out in September of 2009. And by the time we left Okinawa, I had a full-time income and I never had to get a, another job. That's awesome. So it, it worked out really well. And it, it was, I mean, my husband has been like the biggest reason that I was able to get this career off the ground because he was like, you know, you wanted to make this happen, so make it happen. And he supported me. So That's awesome. That's why he's here with me. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie, yeah. for making that happen. <laughs> Eddie's the reason Ellie Witt exists. <laughs> What's a mistake that you've made in the journey? Burning myself out. There was a period of time where I was on a lot of deadlines. I was working for a lot of different publishers, had a lot of things going on. And I ended up uh, realized by February that I was burned out and had hit the wall and could not do anymore. But there was no way I was going to get through my pile of deadlines until I think it was June. So I had to just knuckle through, knuckle through, knuckle through. And I pretty much destroyed my immune system by doing that. And I ended up going to a con right after I finished my last book, came down with the worst con card I've ever had in my life that turned into pneumonia. And I had pneumonia for four months. So I highly recommend not burning yourself out. For sure. What's one of the things you've done right in your career? 
treating it like a business. I mean, there's the people are like, you know, I want to be inspired and I, wa- I don't want to do anything that's going to make it a job. And I'm like, okay, but it is a job. And so I treated it like a business from up front. I gave myself deadlines. I give myself quotas. I have things like that. And then financially, I was I started looking at ways to make more money, ways to not spend as much money, what I could spend money on, where I could not cut corners, but save money by doing it myself, which is how I started doing my own cover art, my own formatting. I do my own website. I do my own swag design, everything like that. But I like I pay an editor because I'm not going to edit my own stuff. <laughs> and what's a piece of advice you would give to someone starting out in gay romance and gay fiction? It would be really for any genre would be don't be afraid to approach other authors in the genre to ask for help and ask for advice. Not necessarily send somebody your manuscript and say, can you beta read this for me by like next Tuesday? Because a lot of us just, it's just not going to happen. We don't have the time. It's not because we don't want to, but things like asking us, who's your editor? Who does your cover art? What cons are worth going to? Is it worth going to cons? What kind of things are worth investing in? Basically it's remember that we were all newbies once too. And if you come to us, we can tell you the things that we learned the hard way so you don't have to. So that's my big thing is just ask people. We're, we don't bite and we're happy to help. Most of us. If we're not, well. <laughs> then don't ask them. Yeah. Come ask the rest of us. If somebody's mean to you, come talk to the rest of us because we won't be. Gregory Ash, why do you write? I write because I find it really fulfilling and I do like trying to, like I, I like the idea of the craft and like trying to improve at something that does require like constant diligence and um, effort. And how do you write? I write, so I, I write 2,000 words a day. I just found out about someone who writes 5,000 words a day, so I'm not as proud of myself as I used to be. But I do, I, I'll outline a book longhand. I give myself a word budget is what I call it. I usually go over my budget. But yeah, I don't outline the whole story chapter by chapter, but I'll hit what I think are the major points for the suspense plot and the, or the mystery plot and the romance plot. And then I try to, as I'm going, I kind of fill in the rest as I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you doing Scrivener or dictation or a combination oh, or gosh. Word or... It's so embarrassing. Up until this last book, I just did Google Docs. Like, I wrote everything on Google Docs, and now I've switched to Word. The only reason I switched to Word was because I kept having to, like, when I format it for publication, I do it all in Word. So I was, like, having to deal with all the weird style, like, that came from downloading it from Google Docs, and finally I was just like, I'm just going to shift everything over. But, yeah, I've, I've never tried Scrivener. I don't know. I People swear by it, but I haven't, I just haven't done it, yeah. Now, you are a part-time author, I know, because you, you, by day, you're a high school teacher. Yes, by day, a lonely high school teacher. <laughs> by night, uh, yeah. Do you write on the weekends also, so that 2,000 words every single day? No I day? take Sundays off. Okay. I, I think there's some value in having one day off to avoid burnout. But I get up at 5 every day, and I write before school, because I, I was trying to do it the other way, and I would come home from school and hate writing. Because mm-hmm. I was so tired, and I was like, I cannot keep doing this. And then I was reading some books about like the science of like sleep and circadian rhythms, and I was like, Well, this is silly. Why am I not just writing when I'm like functionally at my best? Mm-hmm. So yeah, but it, I have to remind myself every morning that that's why I'm doing it. Like, I'm not real happy when I'm actually doing it. Do you want to become full time? Yeah, I would love to do that. I think yeah, yes, yes. Do you have a do you have something for me? A contract? Is there something I can sign right now that will? <laughs> I wish I did, okay, but no, all right, I'm sorry. Okay. No, but yes, I would love to, yes. 
Are you taking particular steps right now along that path? I have tried to, I, I think part of that is building a backlist. And I think in that sense, like I, I mentioned in a, another conversation that I spent a, you know, a lot of my formative years writing across a variety of genres. And I've pulled those book do- books down because I don't think they're the best representation of my work for the brand I'm trying to build. So in that sense, like, although I've been writing for 10 years, I have like a one and a half year backlist. And I think building that, I've, I've stopped licensing my audio because I can make more over the long term by producing that myself. And so I think I'm trying to, like, I, I'm trying to kind of diversify those revenue streams and that's the thing, right? Yeah. People do that. That is very, okay. much, a, that is very much a thing. What's a mistake you've made along the way? I will say, I think the biggest mistake I made was not, oh gosh, this sounds like a Hallmark movie, not believing in myself. (laughs) But like what I mean by that is when I was doing, when I was writing for 10 years, like I would write and I would say, I love this book. I love this book. I love this book. I love this book. I'm done. I'd put it up on Amazon and then I'd move on to the next one. Like, and I didn't really spend time trying to build an audience, trying to build a brand. It was more about like, well, I'm just going to write whatever I want to write. And I think, like, if I had, when I started taking, when Hazard and Somerset started to have success, and I started saying, oh, my gosh, like, I need to act like a, an author and not just do whatever I want whenever I want and assume that things will work out, like, that really changed things for me. What is something that you're doing right now? I do think, I think discipline is, and, like, writing every day, like, I think it's Daniel Steele who has the quote on her wall, there are no miracles, there's only discipline. And I think there's something to be said for that. Like, there is, there are no miracles. And I think, for the most part, the muse is nonsense and writer's block is nonsense. (laughs) And I think, not to say, not to say that there's an inspiration or magic when you're writing or, like, weird subconscious synapse firings that, like, produce things that I could never have consciously come up with. But, like, at the end of the day, there's only discipline. Like, you sit down and you write or you don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. What's a piece of advice for somebody starting out as a gay fiction author? Yeah, as a – so this is going to sound maybe counterintuitive, but my recommendation would be to read across a variety of genres and not just gay fiction. I um, I think that there are some awesome authors writing awesome stuff in gay fiction. I think that it's also – frankly, a niche genre where a lot of the same things get explored and done and a lot of the patterns of storytelling tend to be the same. And I think by reading across genres, like you diversify your own ability to tell stories, to, you know, identify techniques and structures that are useful that can be like a breath of fresh air, right, in the genre that we love and that we want to make flourish. Layla Rain, why do you write? Creative outlet. That's for me. I I have a day job, two day jobs. And so I need that. I mean, and it's, it comes, it's always been that way. Like even in school, like I was writing fan fiction because I needed to get out of that and into something else. What I do is so high stress. And so then I need to get in a different world. And so I just, it's my wind down. And I do it at the end of the day because that, that stress, I need to get out of it. And so for me, it's that creative outlet and being able to, to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So how do you write? So I am a plotter. So I'll usually have the plot. I do the beat structure in advance and kind of put, I use Scrivener 
so I put up the cards according to the to the beats of you know here's the here's the adhesion point the break point you know the the fun and games the midpoint high and so at the W structure and then I write a dialogue layer so because I wrote screenplays first and so I will do the dialogue for the whole book and it basically is like a detailed outline and dialogue and that way you also ensure that dialogue moves every scene there's no scene where they're too in their head too much and then that gives me a good outline stuff's going to change like I can write a whole scene out and then that scene gets tossed but usually I can pick it up somewhere mm-hmm. and use it another way but there'll be some minor blocking in there of where the characters are and then I'll go back and do a fill layer and then I usually have to do one more pass to kind of enhance the emotions emotional aspect of it some Given the two day jobs, do you actually have a daily word count that you try to hit no, when you're writing? I don't. I, I would love to. I mean, it kind of depends on what I have going work-wise and with deals. And so it it comes when I'm able, mm-hmm. right? I, there's, there's a lot more days where it's like, I do like to try and get a thousand words. That's great. And then the weekend will be like 4,000, 5,000 mm-hmm. over two days. And so it just comes depending on when I can fit it in. Mm-hmm. And as we know from the two jobs, yeah. are you aspiring to be full-time in the in the writing? I don't know. Would I love to in an ideal world? Sure. I also live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I love it, and I don't want to leave it. Mm-hmm. And I've had to come to that conclusion within the past couple of years. We thought we might go back. We're originally from North Carolina. I'd go home. I don't want to leave. I, you know, And it's an expensive place to live. And I also am way too paranoid and need health care and all that kind of stuff and structure. And we have it. And we want to live there and continue to live there. And so I, you know, it'd be great if the author income was good enough to live there. Yes, then I would love to be a full-time author, but I don't mind working. And working allows me to also write what I want to write. Mm -hmm. I'm not as concerned about having to hit the trend to make the most money to be a full-time author. I can write my continuation series all day long and be happy with it. (laughs) What's the mistake you've made in your author journey? Having patience. I wish I would have written Fog City all before I set the releases instead of mm. releasing, write, release, write. I really do wish I would have sat down because it is effectively one story over three books. And so I'll know that I, next time I do a, a series structure that's more like that, then I think I will do that just from a time management and a sanity management standpoint. Is it the cliffhanger aspect of Fog City that leads that direction? Because to me, in a lot of ways, they're similar to Irish and Whiskey and Trouble Brewing. There is that hardcore cliffhanger at the end of book one. Yeah. But you didn't do that process either for those. I'm wondering kind of what the difference is in your mind with the between those series. I think there was, so in Irish and Whiskey and in Trouble Brewing, there was a very well-defined a story and a B story, right? There was the overarching red line, red thread, however they say that, that went the whole plot, the whole three books, but then everyone had a separate mystery too. Fog City kind of does, but it really is all tied into the same plot. It's who is trying to overthrow Hawes as the the kingpin, basically. And mm-hmm. so it was a lot more tied and not, not as much AB. Mm-hmm. So, What's something you think you've done really right in your journey? sticking to my guns of what I wanted to do. I wanted to name those characters Irish and Whiskey. And, you know, it stuck. And writing what I wanted to write, and I have that ability, which is nice, because of the day jobs. 
of doing the continuation series and it's where my writing heart's at. Like I still do other things that I want to do as far as writing, but just doing that because it's it wasn't popular. And like if you ask some people in the channel, they'll be like, continuation series don't really sell or it's not it's not the the primary way to go about it, but that's the way I wanted to go about it. So I'm really happy that I did it. Mm-hmm. And lastly, what's a piece of advice you would give to somebody starting out as a writer in, in this genre? I would say read widely in genre and out of genre. Figure out where your sweet spot is. You'll know it when you read it. You'll know what you like, you know what you'll like to write, what you like to read, and go at it, right? You know, to the extent you can write what you love, write what you love, the kind of story you want to tell, and, and go for it. Lucy Lennox, why do you write? Oh, gosh, why do I write? I love it. First of all, now I write because I love it. I'm a voracious reader, and sometimes I can't find the story that I want to read, and so sometimes I have to write it. But when I first started off writing, I read a couple of really good books that inspired me to start, and I wanted to see if I could do it. And I wanted to write fun bantery scenes, and I wanted to write schmoopy romantic scenes. And I, I you know, I wanted to, I, yeah, I never thought I could do it. And now that I can, it's a little bit addictive, you know. Uh, once you start brainstorming stories, I mean, Leslie and I were talking about stories last night, and I was just waiting for her to say, but hold on a minute, you're in the middle of this book, you're supposed to be writing this book, and you're also writing these short stories, like, now you're telling me about this other idea. I'm like, yeah. And I, my mom's friends are always like, where does she come up with all these ideas? I'm like, that is never a problem for me. I, that, that's not a problem. So part of it is, like, you know, wanting to to try out these ideas. I get the impression from talking to you that it's not only a creative outlet, but you enjoy all aspects of the creative process, Mm -hmm. whether that's drafting or maybe editing or packaging a book up with a great cover and then the marketing and then getting the book out to readers and talking to them. Is that a safe safe bet to um, say? No, okay. that is not safe to say. Uh, first of all, you can take editing and throw it out the door first. I understand. Yeah. Okay. You can take revising and throw that one out the door next. <laughs> no, I, I love brainstorming. I love craft. I love craft. I love learning how to do that better or learning why something works well. Mm-hmm. I love coming up with a hook and thinking about what the dark night of the soul is going to be and what the happy ever after is going to look like. I love writing comedy. There are a lot of aspects to the craft I love. And I, I enjoy the people. So I enjoy being on Facebook with the readers. I enjoy being on Facebook with other authors. I enjoy all of that interaction because that that fills my social side of my life and my heart and I feel like I'm with my people in this community socially. But I don't like all of the admin stuff because a lot of it, when you're indie, a lot of it requires you figuring out, I mentioned this earlier, but you figuring it out on your own. So it requires a lot of self-education. And when you're trying to self-educate on how to market audio, let's say, that's not what I want to be spending my time. To. I love audio, but I want to be listening to it. <laughs> I want to be writing for it. I even want to be talking to Michael Polly about it. But I don't want to be studying how to market it or, worse yet, troubleshooting it by trying things that fail because... Not a lot of us know how to market audio very well. So in that respect, I would say there's a lot of admin stuff that I don't like to do. One of the reasons I have good assistance in in Leslie. But marketing is definitely not my favorite. Finding good cover images, even though I love the way they turn out, they turn out the way they turn out because I'm an absolute picky 
jackass <laughs> about it. You can ask any cover designer who's ever worked with me. Like I'm super, super, super picky and it's not over until I'm thrilled with it and think it's going to sell like hotcakes. And so I don't like feeling like I'm bothering somebody, but I'm going to keep bothering them until I get it right or until, you know, us together gets it right. But it, that can be contentious because you can go back and forth and back and forth well beyond where a cover designer thinks this needed to stop, you know, this needed to stop a long time ago. So yeah, there are definitely parts of it that I love and parts of it that I don't love, but the people part of it, I love. How did you get to the place to be a full-time author? I was lucky because I didn't have a full-time job that I had to figure out a way out of in order to do this. I was a stay-at-home mom who ran a quilting business on the side at my leisure. So I was a professional quilter. I did some long-arm quilting, but I also uh, designed quilt patterns. And I put on this annual quilting event. And so, yes, I had a job and I ran this small business, but it was not nearly as time-consuming as this is. So I wouldn't, I didn't consider it a full-time job. I, I, I thought of it as a side business just a little fun thing I did on the side. Whereas now, now I work full time. I mean, like the language in our family has completely shifted. It's beyond a full time job for me, but I love it. I mean, I love it more than anything I've ever done. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine not doing it. What's a mistake you've made along the way? Oh, man. (laughs) A mistake I've made along the way. There are many. Some of it was just ignorance. You can't really say it was a mistake because I didn't know better and there's no way I could have known better. But I wasn't on social media in this world at all until when I published, until like that same day that I published, I started a Facebook account. So I just was ignorant of a lot of this stuff. But because of that, I wasn't aware that coming on the scene with three books in 30 days was something that was going to be looked at with a side eye. And especially when they took off and did as well as they did, which I also was definitely not expecting, there were a lot of people who looked at my success and thought I had done something hinky or cut a corner or what's going on with her. Is she who she says she is? Does she hire ghostwriters or does she, you know, do scammy stuff behind the scenes that we're not seeing? And I didn't realize that at first and I didn't have any friends or connections to sort of vouch for me to say, no, she's just a regular person. So... That, that's something I wish had gone differently. I don't know that I would say that I made a mistake, but I wish that had all gone very differently. I think it's different now because I've, if you've read my books, you can read the consistency in them, you know, you, and a lot of people have met me now and know who I am, you know, in real life. But I've also written things wrong. You know, I've been, I've, I wrote something insensitive in Taming Teddy that I had to make a public apology about and change. It was my ignorance. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had been paying better attention, you know, being more sensitive, There have been times where I have posted things on social media engaged in drama that I wish I hadn't. But in general, I sort of learned that lesson pretty quickly. And so I try and stay out of that. It's very difficult when the political is personal. It's difficult knowing when to engage in politics or even personal politics, you know, even industry politics when it's personal to you. You know, if you have a friend who's being attacked or whatever, you kind of want to get involved. But at the same time, you have to think about your brand and you have to think about your readers and you have to think about the big picture in the long term. And so navigating some of those aspects, again, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like I guess they are mistakes, but it's that's how you learn, too. So I don't know. But those are the things I think of when you ask that question. Those are the things that rattle around in my head. Mm-hmm. You've recently done a, a couple of interviews on other shows. We'll have 
links to those into the show notes because they're really amazing interviews. And you sort of detailed out your sort of humble beginnings and how you did write those first three books very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, from your personal experience entering the weird, wonderful world that is MM Romance, what advice would you give to a brand new gay romance author if they were entering the business right now? Is there is there one specific thing, or would you just say buckle up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there there are a couple of things. The absolute most important thing I think I could say because it it covers everything is self educate. Mm-hmm. Don't expect somebody to bestow this golden tiara of of information upon you because it's nobody else's job to do that. And so, like, I just got approached today through private messenger from an aspiring author who says, you know, can you help me? I would like to become a writer. What do I do? I can't be that for everybody who is an aspiring author. So you need to go figure some of that out on your own. And there are amazing resources to do that. So I would say, rather than approaching authors to say, I need you to give me this information, or will you please help tell me how to promote a book, let's say, a better way of approaching an author is to say, what resources do you recommend for me learning how to do this? Because there are a lot of people like Craig Martell has written a book on becoming an indie author. There are a lot of people who've sort of written these primers that encompass all of the how-to stuff. And part of what you have to do is just start doing it. And you're going to learn so much. It's one of the reasons why, like our author group, once it started growing very quickly, we had to limit it to only published authors because so many people think they want to become a writer and think they want to write a book and they don't ever do what it takes to make it happen. And so if you do what it takes to make it happen, then you will have learned so much. By the time you, you have a book go live, even if it's a short story, you will have learned the basics. You will have learned how to write. You will have learned how to format. You will have learned how to upload it to Amazon. So you're going to come into asking for help at a much higher level. Yes, you're still a beginner, but you at least aren't still, you know, totally wearing training wheels. And you can get to that point with education. You can find yourself on Google. So that's one of the first things that I would say is self-educate because there's a ton of great information out there. The second thing that I want to mention just because I find it's an incredibly invaluable tool if you're going to write romance is Gwen Hayes' Romancing the Beat. That book is short and sweet and easy and funny, actually, and it's the easiest read. And it's basically why are romance novels written the way they're written in terms of the structure of them? And it, it, it introduces you to the concept of something I mentioned before, delivering on the promise of the premise. There are certain elements in a romance novel that readers are expecting to see. They want to see the moment where the two he- heroes meet. They want to see the moment where all is lost. They want to see the happy ever after. And all of these things are little pieces and parts that are hard to keep your hands on when you're doing all of this for the first time. And that book is just such a clear roadmap on how to keep all those pieces and parts organized in a book that makes sense. So that's another really big, big deal piece of advice I give to authors. Actually, I need to interrupt myself and say this. When I start getting into answering these questions, I start assuming that I'm talking about indie authors because I'm indie. So I forget. The answer to this would be very different if you wanted to be traditionally published. So I need to say that and I need to apologize for everything. I, Whenever I assume people are talking about indie, obviously, if you want to be traditionally published, you need to learn how to query an agent. If you're going to go without an agent, you need to learn how to do submission to the publishers you're interested in 
without an agent, if that's a possibility, look for open submissions. There are certain hashtags on Twitter you can follow to see what people are, are submitting for, to see what people are looking for submissions for and things like that. So it's very different if you're looking to traditionally publish. But what else would I tell a newbie? Another piece of advice I've given recently to a newbie aspiring author is don't put so much pressure on yourself to feel like you have to do it all at once. I feel like sometimes nowadays there are people who are readers in this community first and they're seeing all of us authors do all of these things. We have short story newsletter magnets. We have newsletters. We have reader groups. We have uh, author pages. We have all of these things and we didn't all start with all of those at day one, but they feel like they've got to come out of the gate with their first book. They've got to have a newsletter. They've got to have a reader group. They've got to have all their stuff figured out and they don't. And so that would be another piece of advice is to go easy on yourself and take it in steps. I didn't have a newsletter until I was, had like book four, I think, coming out. I wasn't collecting email addresses. I don't think I had very organized like back matter. You know, I, I, I didn't file for copyright in the beginning just because it was just, you know, you just, there's so much, you can't do it all. So, I mean, I, I could go on, I could do a whole show on what would I say to a newbie aspiring author. No, that's really fantastic. I think when it comes to entering the wilds of the MM romance market, you don't know what you don't know until yes. until you know it. Yes. Uh, and that is okay yeah. because that's how everyone, you know, navigates building a career. And I would also say, I forgot to say this part, I would also suggest building genuine connections and genuine friendships. I have had the experience where I'll have a reader reach out and say, I liked your book or reach out and say, why did you do something this way in the scene? I really liked it, but I've never seen that done before. Whatever the question is that starts a conversation with that reader, and we end up chit-chatting back and forth over the course of months. Well, if they then go on to become an author, or if they were always an author, then if they reach out to me with a question, we already have a genuine relationship. And so it's super easy to help them because I think of them as a friend rather than somebody who our first point of contact is, I'm asking for you to pimp my book, or I'm asking for help getting, you know, whatever, you know, auditioning a narrator, like whatever the help is. And I love helping new authors, like never hesitate to email or message and ask me anything. But it's definitely better in the long run, your experience in general and your success if you have build genuine, not what can you do for me, but genuine relationships with people. Mm-hmm. It's just mutually beneficial, you know, because I can help you and you can help me and we can all grow this business together. Thank you to L.A., Gregory, Layla, and Lucy for sharing some of their expertise with us. If you're interested in hearing more things like this or checking out the Big Gay Author Podcast, you can do that at BigGayAuthorPodcast.com. And we have new episodes of that show that come out every Saturday afternoon. All right, guys. I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. Coming up next in episode 236, Alice Archer joins us to talk about her new book, The Infinite Onion. I so much enjoyed my conversation with Alice and look forward to bringing that to everybody next week. Lisa from The Novel Approach just gave this book a stunning review, too. So I think people are going to be really interested in this interview next week. Remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. 
For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.